chapters to go, like another 20. We're in chapters 8 and 9 this evening. We did chapters 6 and 7 last week. The chapters, chapters 8 and 9 are um, going to discuss the call of wisdom, kind of like what we saw in chapter 1, calling from the heights in the streets and at the crossroads of our lives. We're going to see the value of wisdom, the character of wisdom, and the role of wisdom in creation, the blessings of wisdom, and the contrast of wisdom with folly, with the, a life of foolishness. So last week, chapter seven, excuse me, six and seven, um, we covered a lot of ground last week. Well, just a quick review, we talked about pledging for others, guaranteeing security for others, taking on someone else's debt, but not in a way that's charitable or of God's will, but in a way that uh, is rash and outside of God's will and how we can be ensnared with our tongues. We talked about laziness and the admonition to work like the ant. Solomon gave us that great example of the ant to look at and to learn from. We talked about things the Lord hates and what that means, these things, the abominable things, things that are outside of his will, outside of his nature, and outside of his law. And it began with haughty eyes, haughty eyes, prideful eyes, eyes that look down on others, eyes that are, elevate ourselves in our own estimation, which causes us to mistreat and oppress other people. And again, you know, this is something that's a theme throughout Proverbs, a brief discussion again about adultery and the consequences of it. So we'll get into chapter 8, and I'll read this, the first few verses of chapter 8. Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Besides the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud. And... Again, we see wisdom calling out, raising her voice. Wisdom being personified here, trying to get our attention, and we see that wisdom is in conspicuous places. A lot of times in our culture, we we picture the the swami up on top of a mountain that we have to go and, you know, it's this secret knowledge, it's this thing that's hidden that takes some sort of special effort. But what we see here in Scripture is wisdom is calling out all the time in these conspicuous places in the world that wisdom wants to be heard, that God wants to be heard. He's not hiding from us. We see this thing at the very beginning. It says, the heights, the heights. In Psalm 121, some of you might know this psalm, I lift my eyes to the hills, to the heights. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And throughout Scripture, we see God on the heights, on these elevated places. God tested Abraham on Mount Moriah, where he would foreshadow Christ and provided the sacrifice. God drew Moses into the fire and clouds on top of rumbling Mount Sinai, where he delivered the sacred law, written on tablets of stone with his own finger. Some of you remember that account. And we called Moses up to the mountain, up to the heights, and gave him the law. 
And then Jesus, kind of as a completion of that, also in his Sermon on the Mount, on the heights, giving that great Sermon on the Mount, which um, would complement and complete the law that God had given on Mount Sinai. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and so on and so forth. So Jesus kind of supplementing, complementing that again, but from the heights. And Jesus would then be transfigured on the heights when he went up on the mountain with his disciples. When the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Perhaps the summation of all the wisdom we could ever need spoken again from the heights. So we see wisdom speaking from the heights It causes us to raise our eyes, to look up, to look above the carnal wisdom of this world, above the circumstances and the limitations of our flesh, and to see into the very firmament of heaven. That's what we're told throughout Scripture, and we see wisdom here calling out from the heights. And finally, we're told to look up, to look up expectantly for Jesus' return. The crossroads. It speaks of times of decision in our lives, right? We hear that expression a lot. We've come, you come to a crossroads. That's where wisdom wants to meet us, at those places of important decisions in our life. Times of temptation can also be a crossroads. It speaks of the times in our lives we might face uh, changes, new opportunities or direction. And wisdom is there. God's word is there. And then finally, it's this uh, gates and portals. And I think that speaks to these beginnings and endings in our life, transitions in life. It can be due to tragedy, due to just aging, due to our life circumstances changing, career change. These gates and portals, we're moving from one spot in our life to another spot. And that's where God wants to meet us. That's where God's wisdom is there to accompany us through that. And then finally, I think, and the the final transition that we make is at the end of our lives when we're ready to face eternity. Wisdom is there. God's word is there. His Holy Spirit is there offering us comfort, assurance, and peace. So the next few verses, so we see wisdom crying out. Who's she crying out to? To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. To the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So to whom does she call? Again, to the children of man. Who does that exclude? Nobody. That's to everybody. That's to the whole human race. Every race, gender, age, status, that's who God is reaching out to every day from the heights, at the crossroads, at these places in our life. But it's... Sadly, it's only the children of God that will hear. There's a verse in Romans 8.14. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God 
are the children of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Amen. And those are the ones that are going to listen to what wisdom has to say, to what God's Word has to say. And she cries out to the simple ones and fools. And as hard as it is to admit, that it also includes all of us. Apart from God's Spirit, apart from His love and revelation, we're all simple and fools. He alone is wise. He alone holds the keys, as, as Peter would say, the words of eternal life. And there's no greater fool than one wise in their own eyes. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A wise man is simply one that fears the Lord. We've already talked about that. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The paradox is that we have to admit our foolishness, our simplicity and ignorance in order to learn and submit to God's instruction. To be wise in God's eyes is often to be the world's fool. The Apostle Paul would even say, we are fools for Christ's sake. Yet the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And as Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children. The fruit of the choices we make will bear out the testimony of our faith in Christ if we wait on him, if we listen to him and follow his ways. To those who hear, who humble themselves, his word is straight and right. You see that? To those where he says, they are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. But to the one who persists in staying a fool, his word is unintelligible. It's like a different language. They hear it and they don't understand it because it's at such um, conflict with what the world is telling them is right. We see that so much in our culture now. And so when they hear God's word, it's like a foreign language. It's like professional jargon. It's like something that, that, that they can't comprehend because they don't want to. That's, that's what we're told also in Scripture. It's not because um, God isn't being clear in what he's saying. It's because they've chosen to cover up their ears. So the next couple verses are interesting. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Let's remember it's Solomon who wrote these words. A man who indulged his every single desire, his every whim, his every passion. He was able to partake of every kind of food, every kind of pleasure, every kind of experiment, every kind of research, every kind of education, everything. It says, it says whatever my eyes let, uh, lighted upon, I did not deny them anything, is, is a paraphrase of what Solomon would say at one point. But yet here he says, wisdom, God's word, instruction of God. You know, they said at one point in the... Um, in 1 Kings, that silver had become so common in Israel during Solomon's reign that it was like gravel. They didn't even account it as valuable anymore because gold was so plentiful also, and they just had mountains of it. Wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. 
And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, that's a tough one in our culture also. Right? Most of us aren't sacrificing much to go after wisdom, but we sacrifice a lot to go, to go uh, after the things of this world. Let's flip our understanding of that. Proverbs, um, the next few verses, this is, it's a long passage. I think we can get through it. <laughs> 12 through 21. Uh, I, wisdom, and again, the personification, wisdom directly speaking to us. Dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. And so let's kind of keep these in your head as we go through here, the, these attributes, these characteristics of wisdom. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth, let's key in on that, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. Kind of that same thing we were just talking about. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. So again, these characteristics of wisdom that we see, kind of rounding out like wisdom's personality, its nature. Hatred of evil, pride, and arrogance. That's this constant theme throughout, um, throughout Proverbs. The benefits, the blessings of humility, and the dangers of pride and arrogance. Counsel and sound wisdom. Essentially, really good advice. You know, isn't that a precious thing when you get really good advice? I don't know. There's so, many, so few times in my life where I've had anybody give me really good advice that I could just really bank on. And that's what God's word is. Insight. That speaks of understanding and discernment and intelligence, like this divine intelligence, strength. And that word can also be um, interpreted valor and bravery, righteousness and justice. We see from these characteristics that wisdom is attainable. It's not something out of reach. It's attainable. And Jesus taught, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. Access to wisdom does not require a security code, a special password, or magic incantations. All it takes is faith and to simply ask. And we finally, we see these last few verses talk about it's profitable. It's profitable. We're told earlier that wisdom itself is the most valued treasure. Now the fruit of wisdom of higher value than gold. And we're promised an inheritance and the filling of our treasuries. And so it's almost kind of contradictory. So we see up here that wisdom is, is to be desired more than treasures, more than monetary gain or material gain. 
And yet we're told here that wisdom also carries with it the promise of money and riches and the filling of our, ter- of our treasuries. At least that's the way it looks. But again, if we look at that enduring wealth, Solomon, when he asked God, you know, God came to him in the vision, and, he, and God, you know, this, many of you probably know the story, ask me anything you want. He said, please, give me wisdom that I may rule your people wisely. And that pleased God. And because of that, God said, I will not only give you that, but I'll give you all the things that you didn't ask for, riches and honor and peace from your enemies. And so that's consistent When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. And he's speaking of food and clothing and the necessities of life and that abundant life that God wants us to have here. But the the priority is that we seek wisdom first. We seek God first. Truly, this is also what Jesus said. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, he adds, and in the age to come eternal life in this life and in the age to come. And he says, a hundredfold in this life, but as with everything in this life, with persecutions. Everything we can get here, guys, is is temporary. Everything we know that. He says, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We know everything that God blesses us with here is, is for us to be stewards of. It's not permanent. But he gives us that promise along with the promise of eternal prosperity. The Apostle Peter would write in his, um, in 1 Peter, he says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's the true riches where we should desire, that we should be investing in and looking forward to you. You know, this is a, a kind of inheritance that God has for us that will never be fought over in court. I don't know if anybody's ever been through that, but my family had a, a my great-grandmother had a, a beach house. And when she died, it tore my family apart. It was in Myrtle Beach, and, and it just tore my family apart. And I was, I'm kind of removed. My grandmother was one of, like, 12 children. I don't even remember so many. But, you know, they all took sides, and they fought over it, and it just, it was, and some of those people are mortal enemies to this day. Some of your families may have experienced something similar to that. But this is the type of inheritance that God gives us that will never require lawyers It'll never be taxed. You know, that's a big issue today, too. It'll never be squandered. It'll never be lost in a bad investment that you think you're going to, you know, make good on. And it just is gone. We've heard all those stories, too. But inheritance that he says is unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. 
That's the inheritance that I think that God's wisdom and God's word is promising us. That's the guarantee, guys. You know, a lot of times inheritances in this world too, we all see it. There's marriages and there's divorce and someone gets remarried and you thought you had a big fat inheritance over here and all of a sudden, you know, it's the you know, 38-year-old woman that you just met two weeks ago and she's off with everything. I mean, that, it can be gone like that. This will not happen in the kind of inheritance that God promises, thank God. So, as we go through those characteristics too, I really want to see the parallel with Jesus himself, the wisdom of God. He is called the wisdom of God. So we see that he is also opposed to evil and pride. That he humbled himself on the cross to the point of death. He's called the wonderful counselor. We're told that he's the prince who reigns in perfect righteousness and justice. One who is strong and full of valor. One who is always accessible and seeks our profit and provision. And so as we go through these next few verses, I want to keep that in mind also because I think it's building on just this picture of the person of Christ throughout that. So we see wisdom, but we know is Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom, the perfection of beauty, we're told. And now we'll see his role and wisdom's role in creation itself. And starting in verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with his fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So we see wisdom presented here as this pre-existent entity, intimately involved in the creation of the world and present with God and even a companion of God before the earth, before the first dust of the world. That refer, that's referring to Adam. That's referring to the first man. Wisdom here expresses joy and delight in his works. So it's showing you know, delight and, and uh, communion with God and in his ways. And what we immediately see here are parallels related to some New Testament passages that refer to Jesus as the agent of creation. And some of these verses are probably very familiar to you. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
We get that. That's, that's as clear as it gets. That's a great memory, verse 2, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if we see the symbolism, the things that are being talked about in Proverbs, we see how that just interlocks with that. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul writing, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And I think this is something the world fails to understand about our faith in Christ. This is something I think it's missed a lot in the secular world today. We believe that Jesus was a real person, right? He was a real historical person. We believe, in addition to that, he was the incarnate Son of God, that he was 100% man and 100% God. I think most people understand that about the Christian faith. That he was born of the Virgin Mary. He performed myriad miracles while on earth. He died as a sinless victim for the sins of all. He rose from the dead and will someday return to judge the world. And I'm not saying the world believes that, but I think they know that's what we believe about Jesus. That's kind of the, the gospel in a nutshell. But I think if you started really expressing not only is he all of that, which is radical enough, but we actually believe, no, he made everything. That he was the agent of creation. That he actually holds everything together on a molecular level. Every minute of every day, every star, every nebula, every plant, every seed, every fish, every creature. That's who we think Jesus is. That he's this transcendent creating God that is, you know, just so far beyond any of our conception. But that's what the Bible's telling us. That's what the Word tells us. That's who the Word is. And again, I think that's something that, um, that maybe we don't focus on a lot, and we don't necessarily need to. I mean, I, I think that sometimes that's, that kind of, it can get so far out there, to me, He's my friend. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's very intimate. And I think that's also a great testimony. But again, it's, you know, it's kind of like modern science today. If you get a bigger telescope, you're just going to see more and more and more mysteries of God. The deeper you look into the universe, if you get a better and better microscope, that cell never ends in its complexity. We found that out. It's just instrumentation. It's infinite either way, bigger and bigger or smaller and smaller, and Christ is at the center of all of that. I don't want to get too lost in that. I love thinking about that kind of stuff, but it can break your brain, and we don't want to break our brains tonight. That he's the cosmic designer and sustainer. He sustains all life, all matter. He knows every single hair on every single head, and not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. And that's what Jesus would say, this very intimate, loving relationship that he also has with his creation. And I think that's the most astounding thing of all. Lastly, in our study tonight, we're going to skip down to chapter 9. And we're going to look at these two women. 
folly and wisdom and how they're contrasted. And um, we'll read and we'll talk about it. But the first is the uh, woman wisdom, and that's in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. And again, that highest places, the heights, these are things that we need to take notice of. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So in this personification of wisdom, we see a few things. She's built her house. She's built her house with speech, again, of industriousness, of creativity, and really of creation itself, of being the originator. The seven pillars, we know that the number seven always represents the number of divine perfection or completion in Scripture. And so we see a house, and it also represents, like, God's spirit. The seven spirits of God, we're told in Revelation. So we see a house here that is built and supported by God's Spirit. These young women that are sent out, these maidens, in another translation, that represents purity and the message of the gospel, to turn in and to rest in the finished work of Christ. We also see that wisdom here is providing hospitality and sustenance. And that she's, you know, we see that it looks like just a great spread. She's, she's laid it all out. She's made the table. She prepares a feast. And it's this abundance. And we see symbols of health and nutrition. And again, hospitality and being welcome. Bread and wine, as it says in here, that always is, reminds us of the body and blood of our Savior and the sacrifice of love. And she's offering life and instruction, a prosperous and joyful life. And that's kind of the summary of that. Now, there's a few verses in between there. And one of our key verses is down in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it talking about the fruit of our choices and how they're going to affect us personally. But then we get into the woman of folly. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. Now that's the same spot where we saw wisdom sitting calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. And it's kind of this bizarre invitation, right? It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, she's, she's again painting this picture that's, that's supposed to be appealing, but compare that to the abundance and the joy and the provision that wisdom has provided. We see some contrasts. We see some similarities. They're both crying out, but folly 
is just making noise. She's loud. She's demanding attention. And that's, how, that's what we see from the world all the time, right? Just trying to grab our attention, just loud. Folly tries to imitate wisdom. Again, at that elevated place, the highest places of the city, but what's she doing? She's elevating herself. We see wisdom is being elevated in order to serve others, to provide for others, to give to others, but folly is elevating herself. Where wisdom makes her appeal in purity, folly seduces and deceives. Folly offers the menu of poverty and imprisonment. Stolen water is sweet. Bread and eaten in secret is pleasant. She's, I mean, she tries to make it sound good. She tries to make it sound fun and cool. It's bread and water. It's bread and water. It's a starvation diet. It's a prison diet. As opposed to the life-giving, joyful feast that wisdom has. And finally, as wisdom promises life, instruction, and freedom, folly, beyond, you know, underneath it all, is only offering crime, imprisonment, and death. And it's just that simple, guys. You know, one, at one point, Jesus, um, and there was, there was a verse, and we, we went over it. Um, he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. Jesus would say, either you're with me or you're against me. Either you're gathering with me or you're scattering out. And that's the contrast we see here between God's word and the word essentially of the world, of folly, of foolishness, which is anything that is in opposition to God's word. There's no real compromise. Jesus doesn't make a compromise there. It's either one or the other. So, again, as a quick review, wisdom calls from the heights and the crossroads and the gates and portals of our lives. And as children of God, we can hear that. We don't have to seek that far. It's just a simple, Lord, help me to hear. Give me ears to hear. And that's all it is. And he's right there all the time at every single situation in our life. The characteristics of wisdom are manifested in the person of Jesus, the wisdom of God and perfection of beauty. Wisdom is not hiding, but is easily accessible through faith. The role of wisdom in creation and Jesus as the agent of creation, we talked about that. We're told that he is the image of the invisible God. And this incredible relationship that he has with his creation that he's not separate, that he's with it, and he's concerned with it, and every minute detail, and every, every process that goes on. Wisdom and folly, they both cry out, but only one makes noise, while the other promises life, joy, rest, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And how, you know, that is, it's, it, it can be confusing sometimes. There's a lot of voices coming at us, especially in this day and age. Um, how do we know the difference? We saw some contrast. There's some clues, right? Is it elevating themselves or is it elevating God? Is it elevating righteousness or is it elevating evil? But 1 John 5, 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding 
so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. To know the difference, we pray and we seek and we abide in him. So, Father, I thank you for this evening and for your word. And um, Again, these things are, are not easily digested in a half an hour, and I pray for all of us, Lord, to meditate on this throughout the week and throughout our lives and, and to be in your word and to feed on your word. And I thank you that you give us uh, just such easy access to it. And it may not be like that someday. Someday it may be restricted, and it may be harder to get. And uh, we know it was like that in ages past. I pray, Lord, that we would know it by heart, and that we would engrave your word upon our hearts, that we would seek your spirit for understanding and guidance, that we would walk in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you, everybody. Have a great night. It's so strange not having a last song, but every single week it's, <laughs> it's like that. Feel free to hang out for a few minutes, though.